born and raised in West Virginia, and it is definitely a very fossil fuel-focused state. The hope is that carbon storage is going to open the door for fossil fuels to be able to continue forward and in a regulatory system that's focused on carbon management. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we're talking about carbon sequestration, the family of technologies required to permanently and safely keep carbon dioxide buried in the ground. This is one part of the wider clean coal or carbon capture utilization and storage technologies. I know a little bit about this from my years as executive director of an association back in Texas. Then, just like today, there are many critics who think this is a waste of time. Why not just build renewables? To that, I would say there is a much better chance of capturing and storing the gigawatts of installed fossil power production than building millions of new windmills and solar farms. The technology is nothing new. Since 2003, the Department of Energy has been supporting seven regional carbon sequestration partnerships. They have tested wells across the U.S. and Canada, injecting millions of tons of CO2 to prove long-term viability. For years, this group put out a carbon sequestration atlas. The last update, in 2015, estimated that of the 3 billion metric tons of CO2 produced from stationary sources annually, between 2 and 22 trillion tons of storage space is available underground. These geological formations include unminable coal seams and oil and gas reservoirs, which we've mentioned on the show before. You can actually produce more oil by using CO2 like a water flood, what we call enhanced oil recovery. My guests will refer to Class 2 and Class 6 injection wells. Class 2 refers to enhanced oil recovery drillers have been injecting naturally occurring CO2 in oil wells since the 80s. In 2010, the EPA introduced the Class 6 injection well guidelines specifically for carbon sequestration such as these saline formations. The science so far shows that these brine formations hold the greatest potential for long-term carbon storage and might be the greatest untold story for climate change. Not to be confused with groundwater, these saline formations are located miles beneath the surface. The problem here is economics. Who wants to inject CO2 in a saline when there's no financial incentive to do so. Back in episode 31, we spoke to NRG Energy, who have a coal plant that sends its captured CO2 to oil fields. There's a financial incentive there, which my guest today confirms. But with saline storage, you just leave it there. One of my guests, Net Power from episode 55, said their economics worked even with the storage expense. If we simply wanted to pay to be green, the marginal cost of one of my plants of putting it in the ground is five million dollars a year. He added the power and other industrial gases produced from his process would make injection expense negligible. Net power, like my guest today, also point out a tax credit called 45Q passed in 2018 that gives projects $35 a ton for enhanced oil recovery and $50 a ton for carbon sequestration. So even though there is not a carbon tax, this tax credit gives operators a potentially huge financial benefit to put carbon where the sun don't shine. Meanwhile, fossil plants continue to produce energy when the sun don't shine. There may be a future for Americans' fossil fleet after all.
My guest today is Andrea McNeemer, the Carbon Storage Technology Manager for NETL, the National Energy Technology Laboratory, part of the Department of Energy. Andrea and many NETL staffers are located in Morgantown, West Virginia. Go Mountaineers. NETL, like many groups at DOE, both conduct their own research and provide funding, what they call cooperative agreements, to private companies and universities. Andrea manages those relationships. NETL is part of the Office of Fossil Energy. Its roots can be traced back as far as 1910, when the Department of the Interior was developing coal mining safety improvements. Now, groups like Carbon Storage are finding ways to make carbon sequestration from coal and other fossil fuels safer and more reliable. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Andrew McNeemer. We're here with Andrew McNeemer, Carbon Storage Technology Manager for NETL, Department of Energy. And Andrea, this is something I think I know a little bit about. Certainly excited to be talking to you about this. Ten years ago, I was Executive Director of a group called the Clean Coal Technology Foundation of Texas. And this was way before the podcast, but we were very into carbon capture and storage. And the old criticism was that CCS, the capture and the storage, was not developed, too expensive. Is that still the case? Where are we in 2020? Right now, within the Americas, there are 13 large-scale operating CCS facilities. The use of CO2 for EOR, as you produce the oil, it's a way of producing financing as mm-hmm. well. The program that I work with is carbon storage. Carbon capture is a different program here, kind of a sister program. In general, capture is the largest portion of the cost of CCS, around 70 to 75%. Compression and transportation is going to be another 10 to 15% and storage would also be around 10 to 15%. As research and development has progressed, the cost of capture technologies has been decreasing. When you consider the use of anthropogenic CO2 sources for EOR operations, as well as if you consider the 45Q tax credits, CCS or what we've been calling CCUS, carbon capture utilization and storage, can be cost effective depending on the site specifics of your location. And look, I think that's the only way it can go. I've done a couple of CCUS episodes. <laughs> I actually have trouble getting used to that, but CCUS episodes, particularly Petronova in Houston, enhanced soil recovery was the way they made their economics work. You alluded to that earlier. Do you find that oil field companies and that sector are playing a bigger role? You know, this originally is a power production issue, and usually the oil and gas people and the utility folks don't really mingle too much, but this is kind of bringing those folks together. Do you see a lot of oil field input into this? Yeah, we do, actually. Our regional carbon sequestration partnership program, it started in 2003, so it's been going on for a long time. One of the stories the folks who were there in the very beginning like to tell is the first meetings where they tried to get partners together, you had your power plant people on one (laughs) side of the room and your geologists on the other side of the room, and they didn't know how to talk to each other. Over the last almost two decades now, those groups have been able to come together and to understand each other's needs more. And I think to some degree that's been helped by groups like our regional carbon sequestration partnership projects. Oil field companies have been partnering with us on our projects, either as research collaborators or as the site owner and operator, allowing us to piggyback off of some of their infrastructure, which has made the projects more cost-effective, not having to install infrastructure to do the research. Let's get more specific about NETL and the work you're doing. Now, it would seem from your website, you have topics like well-bore integrity, monitoring and verification, fit for purpose. A big part of the role you're playing is the safety and reliability of sequestering tons of CO2 underground till the end of time. 
right? <laughs> right. Any fields using a variety of research components to help ensure, just what you said, that carbon storage is conducted safely and also that it complies with EPA regulations for carbon storage operations. We're focused within the carbon storage program on safe long-term storage of CO2, and the topics that you mentioned are all part of that picture. You said DOE since 2003 created these regional carbon sequestration partnerships to help analyze the formations around the country that can be used for this purpose. What have these partnerships learned? <laughs> that list is exhaustive, but <laughs> just, just some highlights across all the partnerships. We've completed 19 small-scale field projects where there's been CO2 injection, seven large-scale field projects where a million tons or more were injected. In total, there's been 11.1 million metric tons of CO2 permanently and safely stored. We've developed and improved multiple technologies to verify the state of the CO2 in the subsurface, and we found that the problems are both technical and then there's non-technical challenges such as permitting, public acceptance, local and state government policies and regulations. There's a lot of site specifics too. The regional approach to looking at the issues has been beneficial because there are regional and state issues that are different. Yeah, that was going right into my next question. It's probably about this much technical and about this much legal because when I was in <laughs> Texas, the big legal issue lawmakers and our associations were working on was how do you ensure CO2 remains in the ground for the rest of history and who is legally responsible? I mean, God forbid, maybe a different country by the end of time. What is the prevailing policy there? EPA Class 6 regulations is what would be followed for CO2 injections into a saline storage. If you're doing enhanced water recovery, then that would be Class 2. Now that is unless a state has applied for and received primacy. Currently, the only state that's done that so far is North Dakota. They have proved to the EPA that their regulations will be at least as safe as what EPA has promulgated. If an operator wants to do CO2 storage in a saline formation, their permits would go to the state of North Dakota instead of going to the EPA. But um, the rest of the country doesn't have that. EPA is divided up into different regions. It would go to the regional office. In North Dakota, they have taken a stance of CO2 being a resource to be managed and not a pollutant to be disposed of. That should make it a lot easier for storage operators. North Dakota has set up a trust fund. The post-injection monitoring phase in North Dakota is only 10 years. The national class six, it's 50 year post-injection monitoring. North Dakota then steps in and they do the monitoring and they use that trust fund to take care of the site forever. You talk about these partnerships. Take us across the United States. What areas are showing a lot of promise for sequestration? It's both where the good storage formations and also where your CO2 sources. Sometimes those are saline formations. Sometimes those are oil and gas formations. Sometimes it's both. It is regionally different. I wouldn't say that there's a specific area of the country that's bad. Are there any places that are looking like they're better? <laughs> oh, I think the places that already are used to oil and gas operations, there's already pipeline infrastructure or at least pipeline right-of-ways that could be used. There's more infrastructure and there's more knowledge base, both technically and professionally, as well as comfort level from the general population. And so those will probably be the easiest places to start. I've spoke a lot about enhanced oil recovery. That was kind of the leading edge of this. There's a financial benefit to doing that. But I want to talk about sequestration. And when I did net power, they have a carbon capture technology they're doing down in Houston. Is there an appetite for carbon sequestration in reservoirs that don't really make any financial return? 
return. You're not producing oil. What's the idea financially behind carbon sequestration? So I think it, any commercial entity it isn't going to be particularly interested unless there's some sort of financial return. One of the things that's looking positive in their area is the 45Q tax credits for EOR storage. The credit is $35 per ton of CO2 for saline storage, where you wouldn't be producing any oil, you wouldn't be getting any other revenue from it. It's $50. And so we are seeing a lot of interest, not necessarily from coal-fired power plants, where the cost of capture is a bit higher, but from ethanol plants, which can more readily capture their CO2. There is some interest that might make financial sense for them with the 45Q tax credits to do saline storage. And look, from what I remember from 10 years ago, is there is far, far more saline storage potential than enhanced or recover. You could stick CO2 down every depleted oil well in the world and it wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface of the saline potential. Yeah, I can't speak internationally, but one of the products we've put out with our regional carbon sequestration partnerships is our carbon storage atlas. One of the things that we showed in some earlier versions of the atlas is if you were to take all your CO2 emissions from the region, you would have like 50 years of storage available in your oil and gas reservoirs, but saline reservoirs, it was multiple hundreds of years worth of storage available. What you said is true. There is more saline storage available. I talk a lot about carbon capture, but we're talking about taking that CO2 and then putting it somewhere. Compression is still expensive and energy intensive. Is there a way around compression or is there a way to maybe reduce the energy penalty and the costs associated with getting it ready for pipeline and injection? This is much less my area, but in order to efficiently store the CO2, it needs to be supercritical. Compression is a necessary part of that unless for some reason your CO2 is already at supercritical pressure. I think an ETL has sponsored some projects focused on reducing the cost of compression. I talked to some LNG people. They're not compressing gas. They're freezing mm. it. So would it make right. more sense to cryogenically freeze it rather than compress it? It's kind of like this idea of you don't make ice by compressing water. You make it by freezing water, you know. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Net power, we talked about them, was an interesting development for me personally. But one of the topics we've been discussing a lot of my podcasts is this idea that all we talk about with carbon capture and storage is how it relates to coal plants. You need to start maybe thinking about doing something about CO2 for natural gas plants. Is there a shift more towards a natural gas capture and storage, at least from the partners that you're working with? Yeah, within storage, the CO2 is the CO2. It doesn't <laughs> really matter. But I do know the carbon capture program here at NETL has been focusing on both capture from coal-fired power plants as well as natural gas power plants. They are looking at both. What is DOE's role? Is it global technology transfer, developing technologies that boost the economy, saving the environment? <laughs> I also feel that the mission changes slightly from one administration to another. Have you seen that personally? I mean, just this partnership has gone through Bush, Obama, now Trump. I would have to imagine that the mission sometimes adjusts. <laughs> the flavor of the push behind it may change slightly, but I think within the carbon storage program, the focus throughout all those years has been to provide financial assistance to competitively selected research and development projects that are developing technologies that enable safe, affordable, and secure containment of CO2 in deep subsurface reservoirs, and then to do our best to disseminate the knowledge to people who benefit from it. It seems like a lot of what NETL does is they give out grants and work with colleges and private companies. What is your job day to day? Are you mainly handling research at NETL? Or are you working with people who you've elected to give grants to who are developing technologies? How are you managing your time, I guess? <laughs> That's a really good question. And at NETL, we have our in-house research group. There's laboratory 
laboratories here, they do some world-class research here on site. The larger lion's share of our budget does go to external projects. You call them grants. As a former project manager here, I'll correct you and say that they are cooperative agreements, Mm. (laughs) which means that we have substantial involvement in those projects. We do not do the research, but we do meet with the folks who are doing the research and work to understand what they're doing, as well as ensure that lessons learned are transferring between projects as applicable. We've talked about the regional carbon sequestration partnerships. That's large scale, out in the field, million metric tons scale type research. We also have projects with universities and other researchers that are smaller scale. And so one of the things that we work hard to do is make sure that lessons learned in some of the smaller scale projects get a chance to be tested in the field projects and vice versa, things that the field projects find that, oh wait, we don't know how to do this, or this is a big problem, then we feed that information back and make sure that that research is being done on the smaller scale. One project manager to another, more of an agile based or a waterfall based? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Depends on the person. Andrew, we focus a lot on reducing carbon from sources that emit it. And that's the reason my podcast is called Energy Cast and not Climate Cast or Carbon Cast. But I feel like for those out there that think that CO2 is this existential threat, why isn't there more talk about taking it out of the environment? We're working on ways to slow the blower. Where's the vacuum? One of the things, and it's in the capture program and not storage program, but one of the things that they're starting to look at is direct air capture technologies. So that's an area of emerging research for the capture program. Main setback there is that it's significantly more expensive to capture the CO2 out of the air. The CO2 is much more dispersed. It's much lower concentration than it is when it comes out of a flue gas. But that is something that we're starting to look into. You know, I had a guest at Naval Research Laboratory a year ago who was working on a way to take CO2 out of the ocean, which is far more concentrated than in the air. Is there any talk about taking it out of the ocean? I guess it gives the ocean more room to sink, maybe going that direction. I don't know. Sorry. (laughs) That's all right. (laughs) All I know is that we're doing the direct air capture. You're in West Virginia, which is a coal powerhouse, and I spent time in West Virginia doing natural gas and fracking projects, but I assume they let you go outside every now and then. What what does it mean to be working on these kinds of projects in a region that is so important to the energy landscape? Yeah, born and raised in West Virginia, and it is definitely a very coal-centric and fossil fuel-focused state and region. The hope is that carbon storage is going to open the door for coal and fossil fuels to be able to continue forward in an economy and a regulatory system that's focused on carbon management. I'm actually an engineer, not a geologist by training, and if you give me a little time and a little money, I can find a way to make anything work. And that's kind of the goal is to find ways to make this work. Absolutely. All right, Andrew McNemer, NETL, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. That was Andrea McNemer, Carbon Storage Technology Manager for NETL in West Virginia. Andrea mentioned the potential for ethanol producers to take advantage of carbon sequestration. That's because ethanol produces pure CO2 as a byproduct. There's no need for costly capture or gas separation technologies. And with those 45Q tax incentives, it's money on the table. I want to thank Andrea for her time, as well as Shelly Martin in the Communications Department for setting this up. And I want to thank Sydney Hughes, also from NETL, who caught one of my presentations 
presentations at PowerGen last year for getting the ball rolling. We have another interview with NETL coming up very soon. You can find plenty of pictures on energy-cast.com as well as on Instagram at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the wrong completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. That wraps up episode 79. Be sure to join us next week when we ask, are we living in a grid golden age with two leading transmission experts? It was from my panel at Distributech earlier this year. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time. Thank you.